I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today is one of the most important voices in law enforcement and policing in the last 50 years in the United States. And let me say also, probably the most innovative single person in dealing with the question of having a safe community. Bill Bratton served as chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, chief of the New York City Transit Police, commissioner of the Boston Police Department, and the New York City Police Department in both 1994 and 2014. Everywhere that Bratton went, he slashed crime rates and professionalized policing. He and his team created the revolutionary program CompStat, the big bang of modern data-driven policing. But his career has not been without controversy and central to the reckoning of his new book, The Profession, is the fundamental crisis of relations between the black community and law enforcement. A crisis he now believes has been inflamed by the unforeseen consequences of some well-intentioned policies. Building trust between a police force and the community it is sworn to protect is in many ways, Braddon argues, without genuine trust in law enforcement to do what is right, little else is possible. Having watched him at work over the years and had the privilege of being his guest in Los Angeles, I cannot tell you how pleased I am to welcome my guest, Bill Braddon. He has a new book, uh, The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America. It's out now and I recommend it very highly to everyone who's concerned about how we get back to safe communities. Thank you for joining me. First, I wanna say 
I don't know very many people who have devoted their entire lives to law enforcement the way you have. But since Veterans Day is this week, I want to just acknowledge that before you became a police officer in Boston, you served in Vietnam. And I want to thank you for your service to our country. I want to give you a chance to say a few words to your fellow veterans. Well, it's very appropriate as we're taping this before Veterans Day. I'm very proud to be a veteran. I'm very proud to have served in the Vietnam War era. It was part of my maturing process and helped to prepare me for the turmoil I found in America when I came back. <laughs> we think we're in tough times now that people tend to forget what the early 70s were like. I joined the regular army. I was not a draftee. And so I ended up doing an extra year in the regular army. But it was a life-shaping experience for me and one that I don't regret. During the three years I was serving, I <laughs> had some regrets. I would have I'd liked to have been back home during portions of it. But looking back, it really helped to provide a foundation for me. Were there lessons you learned in Vietnam that you carried back into your future decisions and your future life? There certainly were several importance of leadership. I worked for some very good leaders. I worked for some awful leaders. And the importance of Teamwork. The military is all about teamwork, collaboration, whether you're in a squad or a platoon. Your success is not based on the singular action. It's based on the collective action. And also, at a time of great and growing racial turmoil back in America, the military I served in was racially mixed. That Some of my first exposure in a significant way to African-Americans, Latinos, was my military experience. And in Boston, I'd grown up in what was a very segregated northern city. And had a couple of colleagues in high school, but very little interaction with minorities. That helped to shape my first police experience in Boston, where I started off walking a beat in a what had been an all-Jewish neighborhood that was rapidly transitioning to a all-Black neighborhood. So it was part of my early-on exposure to the whole issue of race in America. You know, it's interesting. The other person I know who came back from Vietnam to become a policeman on the beat is Don Graham, who ended up owning the Washington Post. And he wanted to get to know his city. And I always thought it was a comment on Graham that he didn't come back to become a social worker. He came back and worked in the D.C. police force on the street, learning his hometown in ways that almost nobody else at the Washington Post has a clue about. But I'm curious, you get out of the military, you have a chance to go back home. Why do you decide to go into policing? Literally, as I write about it in this book and the earlier biography, Turnabout, a lifelong dream. And I was influenced as a kid growing up in Boston in the 1950s and 60s, television. Seemed 50% of the shows on TV during that era were Dragnet, One Adam 12, San Francisco Beat. Additionally, I'm an avid reader, always have been, still am, and was attracted to books that further influenced my decision was policing. One being a book by Richard Daughtry, a New York reporter called The Commissioner. And it was eventually made into a movie called Madigan with Henry Fonda, which you would mark. And that was the book that really started me thinking about, God, wouldn't it be wonderful to be police commissioner in New York City? And this is in 1960-61. So in terms of as naive as that seemed as a young police officer in Boston to think about becoming top cop in the largest pop in the country, happened twice. Same thing for Ray Kelly. Ray Kelly, actually, who I leapfrogged both times, that was also a Vietnam veteran who gave extraordinary combat service in Vietnam. I was fortunate I had minimum experience while I was over there. So a quarter century later, you actually live out your dream. I'm a dreamer. <laughs> I also, at that time, in the military, was looking actively, interestingly enough, at joining the Los Angeles Police Department because they had a system where you could get out of the military a few months early if you joined uh, a police department uh, such as Los Angeles. 
But at that time, while L.A. certainly interested me, Dragnet, when I was 12, I'm a hometown kid. I wanted to get back to Boston. Had the girlfriend eventually came, my first wife, back there. And so there were other motivations to go back to Boston. And the rest, as I write, is history. History was pretty good. Yeah, I was going to say you had remarkable. Now, I mean, one of the things that happened when you see Giuliani, who's taking over New York at a time when crime seemed pervasive and people were insecure about going into the city, at least the story that's told is that Rudy interviewed three of you and kept saying, so how much can you reduce crime? And the other two gave him the sort of standard sociological answer of that period, which is, well, you know, the police don't really have much impact, and it really is a lot of other extraneous things, and I can't promise anything. And supposedly you said 10% the first year, and that you actually had a theory in your head, and you had experienced that theory at the New York Transit Police. Talk about that just a minute, because it's, I think, the baseline for one of the great revolutions in American domestic policy. First exposure to Giuliani was 92, 93. He had just lost the election to Dave Dinkins, first black man in New York. And he was reforming to learn from the mistakes of his first campaign. And he met with George Kelling and I, George Kelling, Jim Wilson, the authors of Broken Windows that I had been practicing and had been an adherent of for most of my police career. We met with Giuliani and we talked about how had crime gone down so dramatically in the subways while in the streets of the city it was going down one or two percent a year. And we explained the idea of to deal with serious crime, you simultaneously had to deal with minor crimes, such as in the subway, fear evasion, homeless issues, aggressive begging. He had a committee that was doing the interview process for police commissioner. And I was dancing around with the idea of applying. I'd just been appointed commissioner in Boston. And, you know, lifelong dream also to be commissioner in Boston. In the interview with him, I think that won him over. I predicted that not only would I get crime down 10% the first year, but I would get it down 40% in three years. So you can imagine a city that had been experiencing 25 years of crime increase so that in 1990 had the worst crime year ever. 40% sounded pretty good. Might have sounded far-fetched. But when I left 27 months later as his police commissioner, it was down 39%. So my crystal ball was pretty good. I don't know about what the other candidates might have told him. I know in my process of interviewing my super chiefs, who were Ray Kelly's people, when I took over as commissioner, most of them, when I asked them what they thought we could get crime down, 1%, 2%, 3%. Needless to say, I got rid of most of them and picked John Timoney, Louis Anamone, Jack Maple, all these guys who believed that the department had the capacity to get it down 10%. We actually got it down, I think, 12 or 13% the first year, 15% the second year, and then we picked up the other 14%. I mean, in the system that you created and the philosophy you created was pretty well carried out, not just by eight years of Giuliani, but then by eight years of Bloomberg. And there was a consistent, steady decline, particularly in the murder rate, to such a degree that I saw Bloomberg when he was mayor at one point. And he said, you know, if Staten Island were an independent city, it would be the safest single city in America. And he said, and the reaction of people in Staten Island is, send us more cops. <laughs> <laughs> but suddenly, this extraordinarily clear success, I mean, is a pragmatic, realistic, this is all statistically provable, and then there's a break point, and suddenly, all of the things that are working are dropped, and all the things we know don't work are picked up again. I mean, how do you explain, not just in New York, but across the country, the fact that here is a model you know in New York, in Boston, in Los Angeles, you've seen it work. You know you have a number of police chiefs who are sort of alumni of yours. They know it works. And yet 
we've had this dramatic rise in crime. It's in the book because it is one of my great frustrations. For 25 years after the miracle of the New York turnaround beginning in the 90s, I confidently predicted as I went around the country when I was in L.A. that crime would never go back up again in New York City because we effectively found the cure, if you will, to keep it under control. And under control, understand you're never going to get rid of it all, but you could keep it to management levels. I did not take into account, however, the legislature in Albany and the city council in New York City, who in 2016, 17, I think we had the safest crime year in the history of the city, 265 murders down from 2,243 in 1990, shootings down about 900, down from 5,000, overall crime down 90% in the city, jail population at Rikers down 60%, state prison population down 40%, reflective of criminals just weren't being bad guys anymore. And the legislature in Albany literally put through several actions, bail reform, which was needed, criminal justice reform, which is always needed, uh, increase in the age for a juvenile to be considered an adult from 16 to 18. Collectively, those three initiatives that were not done with the participation of police, judges, or district attorneys were disastrous and continue to be disastrous for New York. Starting the year that passed, crime rates reversed dramatically in New York City. So that New York is no longer the safest large city in America, which you held title to for almost 20 years. It is now, like many other American cities, struggling with the ongoing impact of those reforms. Well intended, I'm a reformist. I've been doing that for 50 years. But in this case, it's like the expression of bridge too far, World War II. It was reformed too far, too fast. At the opening of my book, I have a quote from John Timoney, the late, great John Timoney, my first deputy. Those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Certainly, yes, somebody knows history. And I love all of your books about history, of what might have been of certain things that happened or not happened. But those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Those who know police know we don't know our history. I know police history. I've studied inside and out. And Obviously, our politicians don't know their history because they're doing the same thing in 2021 that they did back in 1970. Monaghan had it correctly. Senator Monaghan, in the 70s, he talked about defining social deviancy down, that we were defining what is deviancy down. Well, now we're defining social normalcy down. The behavior we're accepting on our streets is outrageous. In New York City, you're overwhelmed on our streets and sidewalks with all these scooters unlicensed, driven by people who have no licenses uninsured. And that's just one example of politicians are not allowing the police to enforce. The district attorneys more troubling, not supporting the police in their efforts on minor crime or even on major crimes like shootings. So we have a criminal justice system that is fractured and effectively for a year during the virus collapsed. No trials, nothing happening in the courts. We're trying to make up for lost time with reformed laws that give the police really no powers to enforce anything. We're in a mess. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus the best conversations i have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking when we're not 100 percent sure yet what to write hopefully having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view that's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. I'm told by a number of people that one of the effects of the very, very pro-criminal reforms on things like no bail, is that the police and the existence of these George Soros-funded district attorneys who refuse to enforce the law, is that the police get to a point where they say, why would I arrest somebody, go through the paperwork knowing they may literally be back on the street before I finish the paperwork? And that it leads to a dramatic reduction of energy and enthusiasm in the police force. That is one disincentive, Newt, but compounding it and maybe more problematic is that many legislators in the country, but particularly New York and City Council and Albany legislators, have openly been attacking the police, that many of the laws they're passing are intended to penalize police action so that police officers have now become incredibly intimidated in America that if they take an action that they believe is correct, they are immediately subject to potentially being sued for it. The qualified immunity issue, there was a great debate. The George Floyd bill that did not get out of Congress, largely because of the qualified immunity issue, is one example of that, where that protection that the Supreme Court has upheld time and time again is under tremendous attack from the far left. And so what's going on with police officers, they're not only not being supported by district attorneys who refuse to support their arrests, they're being attacked for taking actions that, while Lawful may look awful. When you take somebody into custody, it's oftentimes people that are resisting arrest. You have no legal right to resist a lawful arrest, but people do all the time. And that's the videos we see every night leading the nightly news. So we're in a situation at the moment that is unfortunate that I've never seen anything like it in the last 50 years. We have the compounding factors of police who are not being supported, but who are being actually openly targeted and attacked by legislation. Because it is such an important issue. Could you take just a minute for us average folks and explain why this whole attack on qualified immunity is so dangerous and so central to basically, I think, driving people out of policing. I think if you lose that 
protection, I suspect very few people would remain in the police force. They're driving them out. Some departments have been reduced by 25%, 33%. case of Minneapolis, Minneapolis has lost a third of its police force, one of the most dangerous cities in America, one of the most troubled cities. But the issue of recruiting them, very few cities are having significant success recruiting. And it's also impacting on the ability to recruit what we're very desirous of, of a mixed population in terms of men, women, gays, the reflection of American society. And so you correct for a lot of young people, why would they want to come into a business where they're not supported politically, not supported by the legal system, have the potential to be sued and have their lives and their families' lives impacted? It really takes a very courageous young person to want to come into business. Thankfully, there are still many, even in these troubled times, who want to. And I look back to my own time, 1970, when I came into the business, it was a very troubled time back then. Police were coming out of the horrific issues around the Chicago Democratic Convention, where the Chicago police went crazy. And then during the race riots of the late 60s and the troubled times in my city of Boston with school desegregation and housing desegregation, police were under significant attack. But the attack was intended to reform the police. The attacks now both one to reform, and we're always reforming, but there's a mean-spiritedness to it now. There's a bitterness that a lot of these laws are intended to really punish the police rather than correct their behavior, and it's changed the tone. Good news is, though, that young people, even in these new generations, I've lost track of them. We had Generation X, and I forget what the new generation's called. I'm from the old baby boomer population, but I was at a restaurant here in New York the other night, and the woman serving us, beautiful young African-American woman, and she greeted me, and how are you doing, Commissioner? And I said, oh, I'm doing fine, thank you. She said, I just wanted you to know I'm taking the exam to become a New York City police officer. And I looked up, and I was startled in the sense a beautiful young African-American woman turned out she was 23. And I said, why? And she said, because it matters. Because it matters. And that basically hit me because I have an expression I use, cops count, police matter. And so her not knowing that I used that phrase, police matter. And she wanted to matter. So I'm going to be actually talking to her later today that she's going in for her oral exam to become a New York City police officer. Hope springs I have to say, as somebody who both lived through it and studied it as history, people tend to forget that in 1969, there were 2,500 bombings in the United States. And the period that you came back from Vietnam, there was a low-grade war going on here at home parallel to the war being fought over there. And now we're back because the jump from 2019 to 2020, there were an additional 4,901 murders in 2020, which is the largest leap since we began keeping records in 1960. I mean, that's an astonishing number. There were a total of 21,570 murders. It's really still lower than it was in the 90s. But obviously going back rapidly, and I'm told that in Baltimore, which may be the most dangerous city per capita, the murder rate there is actually higher than in Honduras or El Salvador, which is almost impossible to believe. In fact, I'm going to Baltimore in the near future for a conference, and I'm confident I'm pretty safe, but it's still sobering to think about that. And as you well know, 9,900 of the people killed in 20 were black, 7,000 were white, 497 were from other races, and 315 did not have any race listed, which means, by the way, among Latinos and Asian Americans, there's a dramatically lower homicide rate 
than there is among African Americans and whites. Well, that's correct in the sense that those figures you just related of blacks, I think their overall population in the United States is like 14%, but they're accounting for almost the majority of murders and murderers in the United States. And that's compounding the efforts to try to deal with the issue of race in the country, because at a time we're talking about disparate impact on police enforcement activities as it relates to the black community, number of blacks going to prison, there's a convenient effort, if you will, to forget that the carnage that's occurring in terms of the shootings and murders, that there's a disparate impact occurring there. But there's a failure on the part of particularly the far left to recognize that. The good news is that we have not returned to the 90s in the terms of the levels of violent crime. We have not returned to the 60s. And you're correct, people tend to forget about the, like the bombings. Or in New York City, on several years in the 70s, they had 12 officers assassinated, literally in the streets of New York, with the Simonese Liberation Army in California, the Black Panthers in New York. That it was a time of really open warfare between organized groups like the Panthers of the Simonese Liberation Army against police. A lot of what goes on now is singular, but it has the risk of evolving into something more insidious or more pervasive. I'm curious, as you have studied this so much more than I have, in fact, probably more than almost anybody in the country. If you have the kind of murder rate we're describing among African-Americans, why hasn't the call been for more effective policing to save the lives of thousands of people rather than becoming anti-police, even though overwhelmingly the murders I'm describing are being caused by people in the community, very often drug-related or gang-related, but at a horrendous level. I mean, when you have six-month-old babies killed by random shootings and 12-year-olds killed trying to walk to the store, I would think there would be a demand for dramatically stronger and more effective policing, but instead... The attitude has been the exact opposite. I know you've thought a great deal about race and policing. And why do we go down that road? Yes and no on that point. The activists have managed, particularly in this day of social media, have been able to capture the stage, if you will, versus the larger population still wants the police, still needs the police, but they want police who they believe, one, are in many instances from and of their community. In other words, they want a racially diverse police force. But two, they want police who they feel are more caring, that see them and understand the history of what they've dealt with and the issues they're dealing with in their communities. And in policing, we've not done a very good job over history. I think in more recent times, we've gotten better at it. We train our officers better. We have a much more diverse police forces around the country, particularly in the inner city. Some cities have, like New York and Los Angeles, majority minority police forces. But the challenge is, it's like a doctor dealing with a very ill patient. How much medicine can you use that we know is life-saving, but if you use too much, we end up potentially harming the patient more significantly or actually killing the patient. And in policing, whether it's our use of stop, question, frisk, whether it's our use of lawful force, whether it's abuse of our most important tool, our mouths, our tongues, our language, we still have too many failures on the part of too many officers. Not anywhere near what I experienced coming into policing in the 70s and 80s, where racism, brutality, corruption was so much more open than they are today, particularly in certain regions of the country. But we've come a long way. And I write about this in the book, that we're constantly reforming. We're constantly evolving. 
And the events in Minneapolis, unfortunately, set back a lot of that reformation, a lot of that evolution, set us back years. Derek Chauvin's actions, the callousness of that murder. So we're having to recover from that. But the good news is we have the capability and capacity. And the frustration I have, though, goes back to my, those who don't know the history of doing it repeated. When the legislature in Albany upset the criminal justice system in New York, they just didn't look closely enough at New York. We were doing everything in New York that the Obama Pillars of Policing report had asked for, that the various consent decrees were looking for. We were implementing neighborhood policing. We were doing it with a diverse workforce. Homicides down 90%, overall crime 80%. The city was booming. But in one year, the legislature, in their misguided efforts to defund the police, reform the police, turned the world upside down. And until the public understands that they need legislators who understand history, we're going to keep repeating these failures, unfortunately. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Let's stay with the politicians for a second. Do you think it's because they are driven by their ideological supporters and therefore facts don't matter? Or just that, you know, in a sense, you guys got crime down so low that it seemed plausible around 2017 or 18 to take risks because, after all, look how safe it is. So in a sense, the very environment of safety made it easier to be stupid. Actually, that's a very interesting point, Newt. We had made it so safe that 
65 million tourists, eight and a half million people versus seven and a half million back in the 90s. Boomtown. And this was through a succession of mayors, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, etc. So a lot of it, I think, was just driven by politicians who had been elected by a minority of voters who really just did not trust the police, were angry at the police, were angry at the system, and are trying to do too much too soon, too fast. And they screwed it up. They screwed it up in city after city after city, and we're seeing the results of it with the rising crime and the increasing, rather than diminishing racial tensions, in some instances we've had increased racial tensions. And the concern I have that is not even talked about or noticed at the moment is the idea that so much of the crime that we're seeing in the inner cities, the reality of it is being committed by minorities, largely against other minorities, but that the fear that generated so much of racial tension throughout our history fear of the black man or the brown man, that we run a risk of, by not penalizing those who are committing crime and penalizing them appropriately, at all costs, we're trying to keep people out of jail. And that's not working for some people because we have some very bad people who should be in jail. But by trying to keep them all out of jail, we're effectively creating a fear once again of the black man or the brown man. It's kind of the Willie Horton effect of the late 1980s that George Bush was able to use successfully to help propel him into the White House and beat Mike Dukakis. So I worry about that because if we don't resolve this racial tension issue, we're never going to get out of this mess. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about because it's intriguing to me that after a lifetime of both leading in policing and studying policing, you decided you had to turn towards the whole issue of community and race in America what is it you think we don't get? Don't get the importance of it in the sense that as we talk about it as America's original sin, the New York Times misguided 1619 effort to rewrite American history. We're in a quandary at the moment, but the resolution of it, I think, and I truly believe this, that you can't do it without the police. And I think the police might be effectively the catalyst to resolve it because so much of the tension revolves around police actions, uh, use of force, interactions with the minority groups. And this is where it comes down to the issue of you get what you pay for. Right now, America is, at least some of its political leadership, is reluctant to pay for police. And that's the defund the police movement. And what are the three things that police get jammed up most frequently on that we see on the evening news? It's dealing with the emotionally disturbed, the narcotics impaired, and the homeless population. And those three entities, American society and government, have been wrestling with for 50 years, not successfully. Police have always been the safety net at 3 o'clock in the morning to have to deal with those issues. So the effort now to defund the police is largely driven by the idea, get the police out of the business of dealing with those three populations. Police would love to get out of the business of dealing with those three populations. It's not easy work, and it gets us into trouble so often. But why do we get into so much trouble? Because one we're not trained to deal adequately with them. We're not appropriately funded to deal with them. And there's no place to put them. You arrest an emotionally disturbed person in New York, they go into psychiatric evaluation for three days and they're right back out in the street. You arrest somebody for narcotics impairment, same thing. There's no place to basically treat them. And the homeless, New York has the largest homeless initiatives in America, and we still have thousands of them living on the street. So the defund the police movement, you write about it, I write about it, is one of the stupidest ideas, stupidest hashtags ever developed. And the Democrats, if they don't change their tune very quickly, are going to get their clocks cleaned in 2022 on that issue. 
as America wants police, it wants more police. You saw that in the 90s. My first meeting with you was with Rudy Giuliani down in Washington. You were Speaker of the House, and we were lobbying for the crime bill. And the crime bill that hired 100,000 more cops, and those 100,000 cops by the end of the 90s helped to make America 40% safer than it was in 94. Defund the police now is the wrong way to go. We need to spend more money hiring more police, but training, training, training. I write about my book, I was on the streets of Boston after eight weeks of training with a gun, a badge, the power to arrest you, the power to kill you. And 50 years later, we put cops through six months of training. Not enough. They need to go through much more. But they also need to train every year. These are skills that disappear very quickly. And also the new skills they have to acquire now to deal with the 21st century challenge of policing with all the technology issues we have to face. So if you want to resolve the race issue in America, a central tool to do it would be America's police, who are becoming much more diverse, much more reflective of the population. I had over 1,000 Muslim officers in the NYPD, for example, reflective of the 700,000 Muslims who live in New York City. It had basically 15% African-Americans, reflective of the population of African-Americans in the city, 20% women. We can do it, and I strongly believe that police have that capacity, but we're not going to have that capacity if they keep defunding us. Right now, I think there are 660,000 cops in America, down from that 800,000 we had in the 90s. We have many more issues to deal with now. We have a much larger population. So the defund the police movement, we need to refund them, and we need to also defend them. Refund and defend. That's a tremendous summary. Bill, I want to thank you for joining me. I think your book, The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America, is candid. It's a must-read, I think, for everyone who really wants to get to a safer community, both citizens, you know, mayors, city council. I mean, if the politicians could read it, I think you would see a dramatic change in their attitude. And I really appreciate you helping us today. And I hope that all of our listeners will take seriously your advice. We do have a link to purchase the profession on our show page at newtsworld.com. And frankly, it is always a great privilege when you're willing to share some time with us because of your extraordinary career and you know your extraordinary knowledge and the fact that you've committed your life to a safer America. So I thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to good to talk with you. Thank you to my guest, Commissioner Bill Bratton. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... 
in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.